Well, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and get with me in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. In 1868, a Baptist preacher by the name of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, um, very famous preacher, pastor, they had a church publication. It was like their newsletter, so to speak, and he'd write stuff and they'd send it out routinely. And he wrote this. We're going to put it up on the screen for you just so you can see it and track with me. But he said to forsake the assembling of ourselves together would involve the loss of one of the dearest Christian privileges. For the worship of the church below is the vestibule of the adoration of heaven. If ever heaven comes down to earth, it is in the communion of the saints. He goes on to say the gathered church stands in sort of a borderland between the celestial and the terrestrial. It is a house and yet a gate. Fruition and expectation in one. The house of God, the very gate of heaven. We're doing a series right now. It's called Heaven on Earth. And the idea is, if the church, if a local church is becoming what God intends for it to be, it actually becomes a place that feels like heaven on earth. We admit that We've got a long ways to go, but that's what we're aiming at, at least. We're trying to become a local church where people could come in and they could say, what I'm experiencing is something of heaven. So we're looking at Acts chapter 2, and we're looking at the first century church and how it was behaving and the things that it was engaged in, and we're recognizing that this really is a pattern for what God wants his church to look like. And each week we're pulling out different aspects, different features of the local church in the first century, and we're thinking through, okay, if we want to become like that, here's something that we need to prioritize. So we talked about the fact that a healthy local church should be a learning environment. It should be committed, devoted to the things of God. And so the Word of God is the place that we go to hear His voice, and a church ought to be committed to this thing. And so we think through, how can we design the church experience, so that the Word of God has a place of priority and prominence. We're a learning church. We're also a, a caring church, meaning if you look at the, the first century church, you recognize there was a sincere relationship between the believers. They were devoted to each other, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer, and they were doing it within this experience of life together. So as a church, we want to be a place where relationships are being built out, where we're not just thinking about coming to a service and attending and leaving, but we're recognizing that this group of people here, these are our people, and we want to figure out how can we open our lives to each other and grow in that relationship one to another. We've talked about the church as a worshiping entity, a place where the glory of God is being made known, both in the gathering of God's people as we lift our voices on a Sunday morning, but also as we scatter away from here and we want to have an encore. We want to continue worshiping God with our entire lives. And today we're talking about being an evangelistic church, a church that takes the message of Jesus Christ and it recognizes that the Lord himself has invited us into that activity of telling other people the news of his saving work. So let's read Acts 2 verses 42 to 47. We'll pray and then we'll get after it. It reads like this. They, the early church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. 
Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Let's pray. Lord, we're asking that in this time together, as we open your word, that you by your spirit would speak. Help us to think through the priority of telling people about who you are and what you've done. Help us to think strategically as a church of different things that we could do to help make this an emphasis. And and our desire, Lord, is that more and more people would come to know you in a saving way. Not for our sake, not for building out a church, not for becoming a bigger congregation, but for the sake of your glory, Lord. We want more people to know the saving work that you have performed in the sending of your Son. We pray in his name. Amen. Several years ago, I was the youth pastor at Central Christian in Beloit, Wisconsin, our our parent church, and we decided to go through the book of Acts throughout the, the entire school year. I found some illustrated versions of the book of Acts, so it had pictures of all the different stories going on there, and then it had the, I think it was the New Living Translation was kind of laid over the top of it so the kids could read the scriptures, but then they could kind of follow along with the the pictures as well. And we started in September at the beginning of the school year, and we went all the way through until the following May or June when we were wrapping that up. Now, I'm not sure that was a good idea or not. I don't know, you know, you could ask the kids who, who were there at that point, and they might have differing opinions, but that's what we did. I love, I love the book of Acts. I love the story of God's work in and through the first century church. And I love seeing how God unveiled his plan for his people. And one of the things that we find in the book of Acts, right at the front end of the, of the book, is a, an outline given by the Lord himself. He's speaking to his disciples and he's telling them, it's actually the, the great commission in the book of Acts. The great commission is in Matthew 28, where the Lord says to his followers, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. He gives this commission. He says to his followers, you get to be invited into what I'm up to in this world. Well, in Acts chapter 1, he reiterates it here, and he co-ops us into his mission again. He's saying to his followers, I'm doing something in this world and you could be a part of it. You could join me in this mission of making known the saving work of God. So Acts chapter 1 verse 8 reads like this. We'll put it up on the screen. He says to his followers, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. He tells the followers... He's been hanging out with them for 40 days, teaching them and instructing them. And, and then uh, 10 days later, there's a holiday called Pentecost. And, and Jesus has been telling them, stay here, stay put until I send the Spirit of God who will help you. And here he says, here's what's going to happen. When you receive the Holy Spirit in power, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will be my witnesses meaning you have a message and you're going to go out and you're going to make that message known. And he tells them, here's 
how it's going to unfold. You're going to do this in Jerusalem, and then you're going to do it in the neighboring regions, and, and then you're going to take it to the very ends of the earth. And the book of Acts actually follows that outline. In the early chapters, you're dealing with the church in Jerusalem, and they're making known the reality of Jesus Christ crucified and risen. And then persecution breaks out, so they didn't choose to do this. It wasn't like they signed themselves up. There wasn't a, there wasn't a clipboard at the back of church, and they're like, yeah, let's go do this. They, they, were, they were persecuted, and they were scattered for the sake of their safety. And they ended up in the neighboring regions of Judea and Samaria, and you find the church witnessing there. And then the Holy Spirit of God anoints individuals for missionary activity, and the church lays hands on them and sends them out in the authority of Jesus Christ to witness to the very ends of the earth. It's a beautiful book. It's a, it's a book, then, that's really telling us that God has a plan and his plan is to make known the glory of Jesus Christ. And the church then gets to be glad participants in that plan. That we get to be witnesses to the reality of Jesus Christ. This means that this is a part of our identity. It's our identity and it is our activity. It, it is who we are and what we are supposed to be doing. So when we get to Acts chapter 2 and we find the early church and all the things that's going on there, it shouldn't surprise us at all that the church is engaged in evangelistic activity. Evangelism is telling the evangel, the good news. It's telling the news of what God has done. And we want to be the kind of church that, that we major in this. So we don't just hold church services, but we think through, how can we tell other people about what we have experienced in the saving work of Jesus Christ? So in Acts chapter 2, we find the church doing this, and we're, we're told that more and more people were, were being saved. More and more people then were hearing the message of Christianity and responding in faith to Jesus Christ. And I'm going to highlight, I'm going to highlight a, a few different things that, that are noteworthy here in our paragraph. When we think about doing evangelism, here are three things that we need to consider directly from the text. And I'll, I've underlined them for you so you can see them one at a time. They all come from verse 47 in our paragraph. The first thing that I want you to see is that evangelism is a work of God. It says, and the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. When we engage in evangelism, sharing the faith with other people, one of the things that we have to be incredibly aware of is if anyone is going to respond with faith to that message, it's going to be on account of God's activity. So when we think about evangelism, we, we should be thinking through, I want to do this in a way that is reliant upon God, that I'm depending on God, that I'm praying my way through it, that I'm believing that if somebody hears this message and they make a decision to commit their lives to Christ, it is on account of the Holy Spirit's work in their hearts. So I'm personally leery of evangelistic strategies that feel very formulaic, that feel like a salesperson trying to close a deal. Because that doesn't feel like the work of God. It feels like the work of human flesh, trying to convince somebody or persuade somebody to make a decision in that moment so that, the, so that it might be finalized. See, I'm not a salesperson, and some of you are, so you can give me feedback and correct me along the way, but sometimes in sales, when you are only concerned with the bottom line, you're willing to get people to make a decision even if they don't want to do that. And you're, you try really hard to make sure that that's happening, 
right? You try to close the deal. I remember when we bought a car and I was reading the fine print and I read in there that there's this provision in the contract that I can't change my mind. Like I can't go home and sleep on it and wake up the next day and go, you know what, we're going to go a different direction here. No, once, the, once you sign on the line, it's a done deal. You are legally obligated. That's now your vehicle and you are financially responsible for it. Sometimes gospel presentations or evangelistic strategies feel like that where we're backing somebody into a corner and we're getting them to a point where we're saying, I want you to make a decision right now. And in my opinion, that doesn't give space or proper emphasis to the work of the Holy Spirit. Because sometimes we might persuade somebody to respond in a moment that Jesus is real and he is a savior and they don't actually believe it. And so when we do evangelism, we want to give space for that. We want to recognize, we're going to pray about it. We're going to recognize that if anything happens, I'm not getting the credit for it. God is, because it is a work of the Lord. And here's the, here's the upside to it. If that's true, that means that evangelism is fair game for any of us, right? Most of us think, you know what? I don't have that gift. I, I don't, that's not for me to do. Maybe there's an evangelist in here and we could just assign that responsibility to them. And then they could go out and they could tell everybody about Jesus Christ. And, or maybe we just put it on the pastor. I mean, come on, we pay the dude. So let's make Corey do it. We'll bring our friends. He can tell the message. And then that's how we'll get around this one. But listen, if it's a work of the Lord, then it means that he can anoint you. He can gift you. He can give his spirit to you so that any of us are capable of doing this work. Not because of our skill set or our confidence, but because it's God's work and activity. And if we are willing then, he can use us. It's a work of the Lord. Secondly, it's a work of the church. Look at verse 47. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. It's something that's happening in relationship to that community of believers. To think about somebody becoming a Christian without considering their connectedness to the local church, I think is a misnomer. I think you can't really read the Bible and, and come away with the conclusion that that would be a good idea to have people become Christians but have no connection with a local church. Um, Billy Graham, have you guys heard of him before? Famous for his evangelistic crusades, going to arenas and different places and sharing the news of Jesus Christ with, with thousands of people. And he had a buddy and his buddy was the director of a discipleship ministry called Navigators. And his friend said to him, to Billy Graham, he's like, this is wonderful what's happening here, but what is your plan for following up with these people? What is your plan? If somebody becomes a Christian at a crusade, how can, you, how can they become connected with the local church? Because if that's not happening, I think we have some pretty big problems here. We, what we would be doing, if we're not thinking about evangelism in relationship to the local church, we're actually creating spiritual orphans. We're creating people who don't have somebody to come alongside them and help them mature in the faith. And so when we think about evangelism, we're not just like going out into the community, sharing the message, hoping somebody becomes a believer, and then, you know, good luck, see you later. We have to think about this with the end in mind. If they were to trust Christ for salvation, how could we plug them into a local church? Whether it be ours or another one in town, we want to make sure that people are becoming 
discipled and growing in their faith. So it is a work of the church. Thirdly, it's ongoing. It's not a one-and-done kind of experience. It is routine and even here, daily. Look at verse 47. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. Evangelism, if it's a part of our identity and it's a part of the activity we're supposed to be engaged in, it means it needs to be ongoing. A lot of times for me, I'll go through seasons. I'll go, okay, we need to put an emphasis on evangelism. And it'll happen for, let's say, like right now, back to church season. And you start thinking, okay, people are getting back into their routine, getting back into the habit of, you know, all these sports and activities and school, and they maybe throw church in the mix as well. And so we'll, we'll strategize and we'll go, okay, well, what can we be doing in a season like this to make sure that people are hearing the message of the gospel? Or you think about seasons like Christmas and Easter, and you go, okay, this is a good opportunity. Let's capitalize on it. And we'll put the emphasis on it then. But this passage reminds us this is not just for a season. It's meant to be a part of the fabric of everything that we do. It's supposed to be a part of every aspect within the life of the church. I think it was Leslie Newbegin who put it like this. He said, a church doesn't have a missions department. It is a mission entity. It doesn't just have this one section that goes, yeah, some of us care about sharing the news of the gospel. No, no, no. It's a part of the entire thing. So it should have influence on everything that we do. And we'll talk about that here in a minute. But those three different things, it's a work of the Lord, it's a work connected to the church, it's an ongoing reality within the life of the church. If we're going to embrace sharing the message of Jesus Christ, let's utilize the way in which the early church was doing it. Now, a couple more things before I want to just drill down on some practical ideas for this. When you look at this paragraph, there, and I see people being saved, I'm noting a couple realities here. One of the things about the church that made it feel like heaven on earth and people kept joining it, it was a compelling community. People were doing life together in a beautiful way. You read this paragraph and you see this devotion to teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, prayer. Everyone's filled with awe. They're praising God. They're enjoying the favor of all the people. You look at the the life of the church, and there's something about it that is intrinsically compelling. It's, it's magnetic. It makes people kind of lean in and go, I don't, I don't know what they're doing over there, but I could see myself being a part of that. What they're doing and the way that they share life together is so beautiful that, man, maybe I'd want that. And there's another feature too. There's a, the feature of the message itself is incredibly compelling. God loves us, and we don't deserve his care for us, but he sent his son to die in our place, a substitute to cover our sins, to forgive us, and to make us right. And he is redeeming us, and he is bringing us home, and that message itself is beautiful. So when you look at the history of the church, and you look at a healthy church that looks and feels like heaven on earth, I think it always has this reality about it. It is a place where people are experiencing a compelling community and a compelling message. So let's spend a few minutes thinking through, well, what would that look like around here? One of the things that I think we as a church have to prioritize 
is our relationships. If we want to be a compelling community, coming to church once a week and sitting facing this way and listening to one dude talk and singing some songs together, that's not going to get it done. And in fact, it isn't designed to either. But what if we prioritize the relationships that we have within here? And what if we began to think through, how could we open our lives to each other so that the way that we interact with other believers is so beautiful that it starts to look and feel like heaven on earth? Jesus, when he was talking to his disciples, he said this, John 13, 35. He said, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Here's the proof. If, if people are wondering whether or not you're following the Lord, he says, here's the evidence right here. People will know, it'll be a determining factor, whether or not you're following the Lord, by your love for each other. So he's looking at his followers and he's saying, the relationship that you guys share is evidence, Jesus is saying, of me. So if we want to be the kind of church that feels like heaven on earth, it means we have to think through, how can I develop relationships within this community that are so vibrant, so sincere, so committed that somebody could observe how I deal with other people here and they could come to the conclusion, this man follows the Lord. Francis Schaeffer called it the apologetic of the gospel. It's the proof that the gospel is real. The relationships within the church actually serve as the argument, so to speak, the argument for the reality of Jesus Christ. Is that true of us? And I'll be the first to admit I fall so short of this. I'm, I'm, I love being private. I love being an individual. I love scheduling my relationships according to the things that are convenient for me. I love putting a relationship on a calendar. I'll meet you for coffee. You've got an hour. That's, that's easy. That's doable for me. But the thought of doing life like this, that's hard. And that will require a work of the Spirit. But here's what I'm saying. If we really want to look and feel like heaven on earth, I think it means we have to be willing to say, could we move in this direction together? Could we move toward each other in sincere relationship? Could we do this thing in a way that would communicate God? So relationships are one point of emphasis. The second one that we consider is our corporate gatherings. When we come together like this, it's another opportunity for the reality of God to be made known. Throughout the entirety of the, the people of God's history, this has always been a key feature. When, when we gather together, this is not insignificant. This is not incidental. It's not take it or leave it kind of stuff. When the people of God come together as a group and we gather and we say, what we're going to do is we're going to worship God, whether it be in the Old Testament or the New Testament, something incredible happens. It, the people of God together are a place where the glory of God is made known in a way that I don't think it happens anywhere else. In, in the book of Acts, it happens in chapter 5 and, and actually in multiple places, but in Acts chapter 5, they're gathering together, they're praying, they're worshiping. People are watching from a distance and they're like, I don't know what's happening there. It's kind of weird looking, kind of bizarre. I'm not sure I should be a part of this. And then it says, nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. They were watching the church gather and they were becoming believers in Christ. Or in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 
where it's describing the organization of a worship service, it puts it like this. When we gather, there's an opportunity for people to come in and experience God in a profound way. It says this, they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. So we come into a service like this, and we believe that by the Spirit of God, something so profound can happen that somebody could walk through this door, a visitor could come in, they don't know God yet, and they come in here and they go, whatever's happening here, God is real, and he's present. God is among you in this gathering of the Lord's people. So we think about the corporate gathering, and we recognize this is an evangelistic opportunity. We want to invite friends in here. We want people to come with us, and we want them to feel comfortable, and we want to practice hospitality so we're answering questions that they might have along the way, but we want them to come in and to have the sense of God is real. And then as a church, we obviously want to coordinate our efforts large scale where we think through, okay, how can we as a church become more evangelistic? What things could we do to help train and equip more and more people to be comfortable uh, sharing the gospel? What sort of events can we hold that would be helpful for bringing new people, you know, in close proximity with us, and what can we do so that more and more people are hearing the good news of the gospel? And we've got all kinds of different things that we do around here, and, and um, if you pay attention to our church calendar, you'll notice that we've done things like Alpha before, where we're saying any spiritual seekers could come in, and we would create an environment where they could explore Christianity, no strings attached. We'll feed them, we'll hang out with them, they can ask whatever they want, we will not embarrass them, we will care for them. We've done things like a public forum where we say, listen, we will, we will address questions that people have about Christianity, and we'll give them a platform to do that, to ask hard questions and watch us struggle through trying to answer them. We'll do things like that because we believe that as a church, we should create lots of environments for people to have opportunity to hear the message of the gospel. But here's the main thing. The main thing that I want us to consider is God wants us as individuals to be a part of this ministry. So this is not something that you can delegate away and say, you know what, we're going to put this on core, or a team of our church is going to do it, but I'm not going to engage in this one. What I would love to see, one of the priorities for the, the church that I have personally, I want every person who's a part of our church to feel comfortable sharing the message of Jesus Christ. So if you're having a, a two-minute conversation with somebody, a, a service person, when you take your car in, and you just have a couple minutes and they're just chit-chatting with you, you would feel comfortable sharing the message of Jesus Christ. I, I want every person to be personally in, engaged in the activity of making known the message of Christ crucified and risen for us. Wilson Carlyle puts it like this, I've got the biggest job I've ever tackled in my life. I'm trying to open the mouths of the people in the pews. Biggest job, this is what a pastor is saying, the biggest job that I've ever had, trying to get people sitting in church to feel comfortable opening their mouths to talk about God. I, I know it's hard. I know it's hard. I know it's a huge undertaking, but this is what we are after. We are trying to figure out how can we equip each and every one of you to go away from here and to go to your workplace during the week and feel comfortable sharing the message of Christ. 
if we would do that, I do think that we're participating in the mission that God is up to in this world, that he co-ops us into this mission. And we then become ambassadors of our Lord. And we can tell people the saving message of Christ, that Christ died, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. If you have experienced that personally, if you believe that you are a saved individual because of Christ's willingness to die in your place and to gift you with his perfect righteousness, if you've experience that at the personal level, I hope that you will prayerfully consider how you could be involved in making that message known to the ends of the earth. Let's pray, and then we'll take communion together, but let's pray first. Lord, we are so very, very grateful for your saving work, that you loved us enough to die in our place. So Lord, we want to respond with faith and obedience, and we want our church to become a place where the good news of Jesus Christ is an obvious feature of who we are and what we're doing. And I pray that you would equip each and every person in here by the power of your Holy Spirit to go away from here and to share that news. Give us wisdom to do this, Lord. We pray in your name. Amen.